Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there and welcome to the Explaining History podcast and the thing I want to talk about today is the development of press empires and press barons in Great Britain in the first half of the 20th century. Um, the reason why I want to talk about this is that I think very often when you're looking at British social history, um, this is a, a secondary issue, it's almost like an, an, an add-on to um, the uh, big stories of uh, the development of class, the trade unions, um, the depression, uh, post-war austerity, and then affluence, these big themes. But behind it all is the press. And the, the press is for, before the um, development of television, and at the same time during the period of the development of radio, it is how the country communicates to itself. It is how... Um, the different um, social structures within um, the uh, United Kingdom make sense of their experience. It's almost a kind of a nervous system for the country. And depending on who governs that nervous system, who governs these kind of um, arteries of discourse, um, you get a, a, a particular kind of society developing. So I would say that the history of the press in Great Britain isn't simply a kind of a, an, an add-on or a, a footnote to social history. It is the, kind of at, at the heart of it. And I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast pretty much anywhere in the world, um, you'll find a very similar story. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I absolutely guarantee that the way in which a, a popular press has developed in your country or community would have had profound effects throughout the, the, the 20th century has been a, a global phenomena. Now, the popular view of the 1920s and 30s is that the development of press barons, and this is something that happens before the First World War as well, it must be said, the development of press barons was a particularly dark period. There's an industry otherwise um, full of uh, in integrity and a key part of the um, development of liberal democracy in Great Britain was somehow compromised. And that after the Second World War, things, you know, very much um, reasserted, you know, democracy within 
the journalistic trade very much reasserted itself. This is nonsense. The, um, the, the era of the press barons is not an aberration. As we know now, here in the 21st century, uh, Britain's um, press um, uh, is controlled by four companies, um, and the, uh, the, the, the press barons are not so much press barons as global media barons who uh, influence, particularly in the case of Rupert Murdoch, uh, influence um, political events on in on either sides of the Atlantic and beyond. The real significant difference that the press barons brought to um, the uh, British newspaper industry wasn't the um, the fact that they embraced um, politi- uh, uh, political power and that they used their newspapers for political advantage. This is something that dated back into the 19th century, the real difference that the press barons um, introduced was the fact that they they ruled through entertainment, that they understood that uh, the 1920s and 30s were, despite economic problems, an era of mass consumption, of uh, mass consumerism, and that their newspapers were borne up by advertising, and advertising revenues, and that a certain level of um, what we would now think of as being celebrity culture, but was um, in the 1920s and 30s, far less democratised, far more based in notions of class, propriety, respectability and deference, that this needed to be... um, popularised, and this was how to sell large quantities of newspapers and to become really um, the the voice of certain sectional class interests. And to it was part of the uh, phenomena of the press barons was that they became the voice of newly enfranchised women who gained the vote in 1918 and then later universally in 1928. So if we go back to the 19th century, we can see that the ownership of multiple newspapers by uh, wealthy individuals was nothing new. What we tended to see then was the the multiple ownership of local uh, daily chains of newspapers in 1884, the um, uh, magnate uh, Andrew Carnegie, um, who was both a Scottish and American, um, a Scottish and a, a American heritage, had um, wealth and influence on either side of the Atlantic, and um, he, for example, controlled um, eight daily newspapers and ten weekly papers. Larger print runs leading to lower overall unit costs, um, the uh, development of advertising revenue and obviously the uh, revenue from sales all made this extremely lucrative. And it's an extremely lucrative uh, business to be in because of the rise of mass literacy, because of the development of Britain throughout the 19th century as a, a unitary nation state um, that relies on a popular press for its sense of self, sense of, of national identity. Um, and also um, the fact that a, uh, a burgeoning consumer society 
um, from the, the Victorian era onwards, was developing. If, by the way, you're interested in the relationship between um, print media, the development of a print culture and the development of nation-states, you really should read Imagined Communities by Benedict Anderson. Now, if you go onto my blog um, at outstandinghistory.wordpress.com, I've been serialising Benedict Anderson's work and looked particularly about the development of early modern nationalism and print cultures. Um, really, I'm, it's not, I, I take no credit for this. I'm, what I'm doing is trying to translate uh, a brilliant and yet sometimes quite complicated book. Between the 1890s and the 1920s, we don't see uh, the development of local newspaper chains, but national ones. Um, by 1921, for example, um, Lord Northcliffe um, owned the Times, the Daily Mail, the Weekly Dispatch, uh, the London Evening News, and his brother Lord Rothermere controlled the Daily Mirror, the Sunday Pictorial, the Daily Record, the Glasgow Evening News, and the Sunday Mail. So they owned uh, the um, magazine group, the Amalgamated Press, and their other brother, Lester Harmsworth, also controlled chains of newspapers in the southwest of England, um, and between them, the three brothers... Um, owned uh, a newspaper industry that had a rough circulation of about 6 million daily readers. Um, and this was probably, including even the um, uh, press ownership in Germany and America, um, the largest um, circulation anywhere in the Western world. Uh, so what this can tell us is that uh, Britain, at the height of her power, um, at the height of um, the Victorian era, uh, as we transition into the Edwardian era before the, the First World War, was a world leader in developing print culture and then amalgamating print culture and um, harnessing the power of print culture. Now, if we think of the, the power that um, press magnates have now, um, it makes sense if we think of it in this way, that print culture has been developing in roughly this way for about a century. And the real trailblazers were um, uh, causing uh, the uh, concentration of um, newspapers and magazines into a small number of hands before the, the turn of the 20th century. It was the turn of regional newspapers to be consolidated after 1918, and the provincial evening titles controlled by the big five chains of newspapers um, rose from 8 to 40% between 1921 and 1939. The, re the ownership of provincial morning titles um, by the big five chains grew from 12 to 44%. And this inevitably saw the loss of competition throughout the period um, other local um, chains and local newspapers and uh, less profitable regionals s simply wiped out because they were unable to compete. So, for example, from 1921 to 37, the number of uh, provincial and regional uh, towns that had their own evening paper um, declined. So, uh, from um, 24 
um, towns with evening papers in 1921 to 10 in 1937. So what does that mean, other than some rather boring statistics? Well, it means that plurality within the media was in decline, that the, the diversity of ideas, opinions, um, outlooks um, was in steep decline throughout the interwar period. And this continued apace throughout the post-war years as well. But the interwar years see um, the increase uh, in sales of national daily newspapers outpace everything else. So, for example, national daily newspaper circulations rose from uh, 4.5 million uh, readership readers a day in 1920 to 10.6 million in 1939. So by the eve of the Second World War, most people in Britain are getting their view, their news and their views and their commentary uh, from national newspapers. That's not to suggest that somebody in Kettering or Dorset isn't also reading a local or a regional or an evening paper as well, as may well be the case. But certainly the power of national newspapers is um, uh, almost undisputed. And it is a power that Stanley Baldwin, um, and this was uh, something that was dreamt up by uh, Rudyard Kipling, um, this quote, Stanley Baldwin referred to it as power without responsibility, that suddenly an institution that had no... um, democratic oversight that was not elected, that was not um, subject to any parliamentary control or restraint, suddenly has a an ability to speak to the nation and to influence and shape views um, far beyond um, anything that um, sometimes Parliament itself can muster. And so in a, a tradition that British politicians adhere to today, um, that dates back to the 1920s and even Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavour That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free Hello Fresh Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Earlier, one would suggest. 
of making sure that you have the press on site at all times because they can make or they can break a government depending on what they choose to do. Now, there is a certain argument, uh, and I don't think it's an invalid one, to suggest that newspapers today, like The Sun, for example, don't make or break governments, and that what they simply do is that the proprietors um, get a sense of which way the wind is blowing anyway, and then chart a course um, in that direction. It would certainly be the, seem the case that um, the decision to back Tony Blair in 1995 um, was taken fairly reluctantly uh, by Rupert Murdoch at first, um, but the evidence that the Conservative Party had run out of steam and the fact that Margaret Thatcher was able to intercede on Tony Blair's behalf and convince Rupert Murdoch that he was as she, in her words, a patriot. This would suggest that um, newspaper proprietors don't always have the power necessarily to set agendas, but they can certainly see which way the political mood is going and enhance and accentuate agendas. But the growth in national newspapers meant that you could own relatively few newspapers and have massive audiences instead of having you know, 20 or 30 newspapers are managing to capture comparatively fewer people. By the end of the 1930s, an interesting phenomenon takes place. We start to see um, the proprietors themselves becoming less directly uh, involved or less directly um, connected to the newspapers and in this, instead large newspaper groups, large kind of... Um, uh, management conglomerates de uh, developed um, that were owned by shareholders. Throughout the 20s and 30s, many of the um, press barons who uh, almost uniformly held uh, conservative with a small and a large C um, points of view saw newspapers as a way of um, extending their own political views. Bear in mind, most of the proprietors, people like Max Aitken, um, Lord Beaverbrook, were closely um, uh, related to government. During the war, he has a role in government as Minister for air Aircraft Production and uh, a couple of other things too. Um, and he, and so they have very often something of a revolving door with, with Downing Street. Um, and they had... Uh, a, a powerful sense that their views um, should and could and should be heard uh, on a national level. Um, not all proprietors um, had such a, a, a dictatorial control over their newspapers. Um, Beaverbrook was one who's particularly famous for this. Um, he um, used the Daily Express um, to support appeasement, for example, very directly during the mid-1930s. But a key difference um, that you can identify about the press barons is that instead of trying to uh, work within political parties to control them, they are, for the first time, um, non-political party actors that wage sometimes, often a kind of a, a war against um, political parties. They, um, they are instruments of power used against political parties their independence was quite frightening to the political establishment at, at the time. Um, their um, 
uh, ambitions aren't so much the issue, it's, it's the fact that they uh, aren't under any kind of control that political parties can place, place them under. And why? Because they have advertising revenue. They have readers that enjoy the sensationalism and the uh, uh, political views that are put across and who uh, purchase goods and services advertised in newspapers. And this makes the newspaper industry really an autonomous voice. They had proven during the First World War um, how, how dangerous they could be. Um, newspaper reports from the front line, um, fed by um, generals such as French and Rawlinson, about the supposed lack of preparation for the war uh, by the Asquith government, the shell crisis, and also Asquith's seeming diffidence and there was a sort of strange disinterest in, in the war, um, had a huge hand in unseating him and replacing him with Lloyd George. And the um, post-war um, austerity that was uh, inflicted on the country uh, as a result of the sharp depression at the end of the war was partly organised by Rothermere and Northcliffe who used their newspapers to campaign against what they viewed as squandermania, uh, Lloyd George's promises to build houses and to introduce social reform at the end of the war, largely um, as a result of a fear of, um, of revolution, was um, attacked by, the, um, the, the, by most newspapers on Fleet Street. Who was reading these newspapers? Well, it was the um, the middle classes, uh, the lower middle classes, who viewed themselves one step up the social ladder from the working classes and, and feared that this kind of new state socialism, as it was um, uh, portrayed to be, would drag them through taxations and uh, regulation back into um, a, a working class lifestyle. The um, interesting statistic that uh, I was reading some time ago uh, by one of Britain's leading sophologists was that if women had not been franchi enfranchised in 1918 and then in 1928, the Conservatives would not have won a single election in the 20th century. And that it was um, mainly female voters who had who identified with the Conservatives and identified with the largely right-wing popular press and shared their 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 views and aspirations um, that um, campaigned uh, against um, excessive state spending. They uh, they were um, resentful of the idea that things might be taken from they them and their families and redistributed. Um, and that now the control, wartime controls had to end and that the only way to return to prosperity really was that the country be run like a, um, a, sort of like a well-maintained family budget. And this was all very popular stuff. I mean, economically, it's arguable it doesn't make any sense at all. But that doesn't make any difference to the, the, the Daily Mail or the Daily Express reader um, in 1920. And of course... The um, the Liberal Party, uh, though part of a national government still, um, was um, in charge with Lloyd George as the figurehead and the Conservative Party 
and the um, popular press were really leading a kind of a right-wing um, populist revolt uh, against Lloyd George to bring the Conservatives back into power. And when the Conservatives returned to power, the um, uh, two press barons, Beaverbrook and Rothermere, began to um, believe that their role was now to interpret how e- Britain would go ahead economically. And they um, became convinced that Britain's problems could be fixed by creating a free trade zone to protect the British Empire. Um, and they began to back the United Empire Party as a small conservative fringe party um, that campaigned for by-elections from 1930 onwards, um, resulting in a victory for um, Vice Admiral Turner, or their candidate in the Tory seat of Paddington. Um, this put immense pressure on Stanley Baldwin, who staked his political career uh, on staying to uh, fight for his leadership after the um, af- after this this by-election upset. Um, and this was here, really, where the, his his um, dislike of the press barons um, crystallised into his ideas about power without responsibility. And if we can see an instance of power without responsibility at its most naked, um, Rothermere later went on in 1934, still um, believing in his own significance and importance in the in answers to Britain's economic problems, to embrace Oswald Mosley's British Union of Fascists, and later to have his photo taken with Adolf Hitler, it should be remembered as well. Oswald Mosley, and if you if you are um, unsure about him, go back through the podcast list. I did it a couple of years ago now, um, a, a podcast on uh, Oswald Mosley. But um, Mosley, um, by 1934, um, had shed his uh, supposedly radical and progressive notion, um, exterior uh, as leader of the new party, and had openly bra- embraced um, anti-Semitic, uh, anti-socialist, um, violent communist, uh, violent fascism, um, and were defeated de- defeated roundly at the Battle of Cable Street in 1936 when the movement starts to go into decline. Um, the I mean, Beaverbrook and Rothermere had always kind of hovered around the the kind of the more extreme right end of the Conservative Party and, and braced. The, the imperialist uh, faction of the party, um, much as Joseph Chamberlain had done in uh, the, um, the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, the, the evening news that was controlled by Rothermere um, had a, this is wonderful, a letter-writing competition um, called Why I Like the Black Shirts. And the... Um, it took. Um, it had catastrophic, or near catastrophic consequences, because it took um, a fairly obscure, unknown fringe organisation of extremists and put them into the uh, national spotlight, and thus accounting possibly by 1934 for their 50,000 members nationwide. Okay, so I'll finish that. But I think there are a few points just to kind of um, recap on. Um, that the uh, uh, there is a, an interesting continuance between um, the 
early 20th century and the mid-century. And the current um, kind of political attitudes and outlooks and power and influence of the the newspaper business and now the global media business um, in the United Kingdom. And I'm, there are uh, versions of this that have played out in other, um, not just Anglosphere, but uh, uh, other um, first world and probably second and third world countries um, uh, throughout the 20th century. The um, power that the newspapers had was something um, in the 20th century fairly novel and new because it came from um, an independent source. It came from the ability to be sustained by advertising and revenue sales and to be able to form and um, develop the outlook and opinion and views of readers. Anyway, I hope you found this useful today, and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Thanks very much. All the best. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.